Professor Dominic Dwyer is Director of Public Health Pathology in New South Wales and Director of the Institute of Clinical Pathology and Medical Research at Westmead Hospital in Sydney, Australia. He leads the World Health Organisation National Influenza Centre and is a member of the World Health Organisation Joint Mission on the Origins of SARS-CoV-2 that recently undertook an examination of the issues leading to COVID-19 arising in Wuhan, China. Ed Blakely is a former Washington insider, an internationally recognised leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author. Welcome, Dominic, to Pacific Conversations. We're trying to re-establish a very long conversation. I've been here 30 years, and I always had to fight off some too much Americanism in Australia. And now we have some anti-Americanism going on. Right. But that's true around the world. People are afraid of one another now. Might be carrying a disease or a bad idea, one or the other, no mm. matter where you're from. And I guess the first question I have to ask you is not so much what this disease is or where it come, came from, but how did it wreak so much damage so quickly? Mm-hmm. Why do we close down everything? Well, look, it's clearly complicated. Uh, and there, one of the reasons that drives a lot of this sort of behaviour, particularly in the beginning, is the fact that people don't have information. They didn't have, you know, and for example, in Wuhan in China, where all of this COVID-19 started. In the first month or so, they had no information about what the virus was. They didn't know what it was called. They didn't know how to detect it. They had no laboratory tests. Uh, They didn't know how to treat any of the patients. So that first few months was really an enormous state of panic. Now, we've actually seen this replicated in many other countries around the world. We've seen the same uh, panic and anxiety in, in Italy, in, in Iran, in, in the United States, even though we're starting to gather more and more information. So when there's a, a, a knowledge vacuum, that's actually when you get, um, uh, in a sense, panic, uh, 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 attacks, uh, blame, uh, all of those sorts of things. So until you only get better politics and better behaviour when the science is better, Uh, And we're starting to reach that stage now. But certainly in the beginning of all of this, this was really hard. Well, well, particularly when there was one person denying in a very prominent position. But I want to go back to where it started mm -hmm. and the blaming. And we're not here to blame anybody. Mm -hmm. But it did start in Wuhan someplace. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were on the mission or one of the missions to look at that. Mm -hmm. What are the kinds of things that you could say about that that would help us understand why things turn so secret so quickly? Well, look, I think there, there are a couple of things. First of all, understanding the origins of all of this is really complex. If it was easy, of course, we wouldn't have needed to go there in the first place. Um, and it's worth pointing out that many of the diseases we deal with that emerge uh, uh, are actually very difficult to figure out uh, because they're nearly all of animal origin. So if you take an example... Non-human. 
non-human. They start off in animals. So mm -hmm. these viruses, for example, uh, the SARS coronavirus, is most likely to be present in animals, probably bats, which then transmit to another animal, which has much closer linkages to humans. Uh, and this is typical of many, many viruses. If you look at Ebola virus in Africa, which we had that big outbreak a few years ago, we've been dealing with outbreaks of Ebola virus for about 40 years or so, but it's only in the last three or four years that we've understood where it comes from. When we had SARS in Beijing in 2003, in Guangdong as well, uh, it took about two years to figure out that this virus came from bats. So when we go back to what happened in Wuhan, it's not surprising we don't actually know its true origin. We have ideas and hypotheses, some of which are eminently sensible, some of which are, you know, conspiracy theory type uh, behaviours and so on. But that uh, mm -hmm. leads to a lot of uh, misinformation being circulated as real information. How do we get on top of that? Well, it depends on a lot of things. I mean, ultimately, it's about transparency of knowledge. I think mm -hmm. that's super important. Now, look, this started in Wuhan, uh, uh, and there was no doubt that there was perhaps a lack of transparency from the Chinese government to their people, to be honest, mm -hmm. uh, to their medical people, uh, and to the rest of the world. Uh, now, whether that's a peculiarly Chinese phenomenon or whether, in fact, lots of countries would do this faced in the same way. But you only work out the answers when people are transparent about what's going on. The difficulty is that if you don't be transparent very quickly, the virus gets away from you. So the, And the truth gets away from you. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So I think, you know, what happened again, this is an, this is a personal opinion, but I think in, 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 uh, in Wuhan, uh, you, you know, decision make, I'm not a Chinese expert, but decision making, you know, tends to go up to head office before it comes back down, if you like. Sounds like a state we know both well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, we'll, we'll go there. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fine. So, so uh, it's not a criticism, it's just a function of that society, perhaps. Um, and the trouble is a virus moves too quickly for that sort of thing to happen. Um, now, not to say that it wouldn't happen anywhere else. And in fact, the number of countries really struggled in the beginning with this um, because they didn't quite understand what was going on and they weren't necessarily transparent not so much about what they knew, but what they didn't know. Yeah. So it's just as important to be saying to people, we don't know what's going on, but this is what we're going to do to find out what is going on. It's just as important as saying, oh, well, we know the answer, we know the virus, we'll do the test, we'll give you the treatment. Uh, so that transparency uh, is super important. And, and to be honest, everybody, or you know, many countries kind of aren't as transparent as they should be because they're worried they're going to be blamed for what's going yes. on. And that's even, even uh, in the situation, once it was out of hand, it seemed to me there was too much discussion about what to do rather than saying, here are the four things you need to do. Wear a mask, stay 1.5 meters apart, wash your hands. Mm -hmm. We did that pretty much in Australia. 
We did do that. And I think, uh, uh, look, uh, I was at a talk last night uh, that Anthony Fauci was giving uh, to the University of New South Wales, and he talked about this exact thing, how that in Australia, and, and in comparison to the United States, he was talking about, but in Australia, people accepted the advice of government. In general, the government advice and the health advice was bipartisan, uh, and people accepted the advice because along with the politicians, they saw their chief health officers and their scientists. And you could argue that in a number of countries, and perhaps the US is a good example, it seemed to be bipartisan and uh, non-bipartisan. Uh, so that, you know, if the Democrats said one thing, you know, the Republicans would do another. So that lack of bipartisan uh, approach ultimately ends up being very damaging, I think. And that would be, you know, the bipartisan approach is probably what contributed significantly to what Australia did. Plus, Australians tend to do what they're told, believe it or not. Uh, yes. Uh, and last is the last minute in the rugby match. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, one other thing about this that is kind of amazing to me is the number of so-called remedies. Who got it right? I hear the people in Vietnam got it right by gargling. Uh, the people in Korea got it right by, uh, you know, taking certain kinds of uh, home medicines. And so did anybody get it right with remedies before the vaccine? Look, I'm not convinced that they did. Uh, I mean, it's very hard to tease out successful treatment from anecdotal treatment. Uh, an anecdotal benefit. And of course, with the Western style medicine, you know, we, we, we focus on clinical trials and placebo controlled trials uh, and so on, which ultimately I think is, is the right thing to do. But the trouble with that is it takes time. Yes. So in the midst of the early phase of the pandemic, everybody's trying everything because nobody's got the time to do the clinical trials. Now, the way around that is to actually set it up in before you have a pandemic. You know, what is the approach to trying things uh, and how do you work that out before you have the pandemic? Doing it in the midst of the pandemic is really difficult because of the sheer workload. Um, so I, I think um, my feeling is that there were a lot of silly um, uh, claims about all sorts of drugs including being made by otherwise, you know, highly intelligent and sensible people. But I think, uh, uh, I think that sort of thing is ultimately very damaging because the public lose confidence. If they see, see you know, senior leadership uh, arguing the toss over their home remedy versus another or getting information perhaps just from the television or the internet, uh, the, the, the public then get a bit, get disillusioned, I think, and start to reject it. And I think that but, is a problem. And we're seeing that with the vaccines. But let, let's, before we get to the vaccines, why did Vietnam have so few deaths? I've been to Vietnam a number of times. And uh, you can't turn around without somebody bumping into you. That is a closely knit society. People live on top of them. So, and I believe they've only had less than a hundred deaths. How'd they get right? And Taiwan, similarly. 
Yeah, look, I think it, it is very instructive to see uh, how different countries have responded and handled the pandemic. I mean, you could also argue that China ultimately handled things very well. Not yes. in the beginning. But we don't know. Oh, well, you know, that's another question too. Yes, we don't necessarily know. Um, but at least at the moment, they're in a much better situation than, than many other countries. Um, and, and look, uh, I think there's a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, I think in some cultures, the collective responsibility is very strong. Um, so I'm not an anthropologist, mm -hmm. but uh, 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 some countries, in many countries, the community uh, and the collective is as important as individual. So if the collective feeling is we have to do this to stop this problem, then, provided they do the right thing, uh, then their, their, their actions can be very good. In a situation where individuals are allowed to do more of what they want, then you start to get, particularly with the media and internet access mm -hmm. and so on, you start to get really different patterns of behaviour. And I suspect that that's been one of the problems in some of the Western countries in handling the pandemic. Uh, mind you, uh, in certain countries, China, Taiwan, Vietnam, the ones you've mentioned, government control over the population is actually pretty strong. Yes. Uh, they're not always democratic, some of, the, you know, some of them are, uh, but they're not always democratic. So if the government says you've got to do something, then <laughs> most of the time, you know, people end up doing it. But there's still that strong collective um, um, uh, responsibility, which is, I think... Good and bad, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's take kind of the opposite ends of this. The Swedes did every, whatever the heck they wanted to do. And for a while, they looked okay. But now it's a mess. That's exactly right. And, and, that's and an the U.S. was doing everything wrong. And now it looks like they're getting it together. Yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, I think one of the things, too... Uh, and perhaps I should have mentioned it before, is that in the end, I guess, government and leadership have to make decisions about what's most important. Is it the health of individuals and the population or is it the economic machinery that drives the country? Now, my understanding is that in some countries, and I think Sweden is one of them, they kind of decided that the, 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 the worry of affecting the economy uh, was more important, perhaps, than the, the possible ill health of the population, remembering they didn't know everything about things at the time. So by keeping the economy going, um, the economy initially did keep going, but now they've run into trouble with their population being, you know, badly affected. And we now know, of course, that the more badly the whole population is affected with this disease, the worse the economy goes. So I think countries are trying to make decisions about do we protect our economy or do we protect people? And I think, I think that by protecting your people, you end up protecting your economy rather than the other way around. Well, since Australia and New Zealand have gotten it right. In that well, that's right. So now their economies are bouncing back. Um, uh, and, and, and as countries get it right, the economies bounce back. Uh, let's talk about that in a slightly different way. Uh, since this was so heavily politicized in many countries, where do we go now 
when this is not going to be the last pandemic or similar exercise we face, how do we get the politics out of this? In Australia, it's emerging now over the vaccine. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's important to be very international in your approaches because, you know, viruses and infected animals and so on don't respect borders. They don't know what right. they are and they don't respect them. So, uh, 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 and, but people do. So the problem is that if you don't take an international approach to things, one country can try and do something, but they could be swamped by, by things going on in other countries that are adjacent. So, okay, if you're an island like Australia or New Zealand, that, that's great. But, you know, for many other countries, for example, in Europe, you know, Germany controlled things quite well for quite a long time, but eventually they've been swamped by all the activity happening in the other countries on their borders that, that, that you know, haven't been controlling. So I think the international approach is really important. That means that you've got to have international structures at work, such as the World Health Organization, mm -hmm. such as the United Nations. And those organizations certainly can be, you know, criticized and, and, and so on in a number of different ways. But if you withdraw from them, like was threatened, you know, uh, under the, the Trump administration, then you've got no international organisations that have the ability to develop a worldwide approach to things. Uh, and, and so I think internationalism is actually really important. You it's can't be isolationist. That's a very important statement for this show <laughs> in particular. Yeah. Because uh, my strong belief is working together, we get better things done faster. Absolutely. Uh, Mexico's problem is the American problem. People don't come from Mexico because they want to. It's because the economy is weak. Mm, mm. And by the US not sharing some economic capacities, they create the problem they're trying to fight. Yeah, the wall is not the answer. Yeah, no, that's right. Strong economies in Central America are the answer. Yeah, yeah. The other, the international thing can, doesn't always have to go through the international organizations. So when I think of, uh, for example, uh, some of the situations or systems set up by the United States to manage HIV around the world, uh, PEPFAR and these other uh, institutions set up by NIH and you know, funded um, uh, by, by America, those sorts of things that allow treatment across all sorts of different countries, and not only the treatment, but the training of people across all sorts of different countries has had a very significant impact on HIV around the world. Mm. So, you know, that doesn't have to be led by uh, the United Nations or, or, or WHO, um, but it has to be uh, a commitment from powerful and rich countries to help other countries. So, so I think you can do this in managing disease, but, you know, you want everybody to buy into it. Well, uh, there is a collective, I forget what it's called, that's trying to manage the current disease, mm -hmm. uh, broad organizations, public health people like you, uh, that are trying to do this together, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. meeting on Zoom and the like. Tell me more about that. 
Well, look, there's a, you know, uh, yes, so, so there's a whole Zoom um, industry, if you like, in, in working out uh, uh, how to respond to this sort of international pandemic. Uh, some of, and, you know, it depends on what area of expertise you need. You know, some of it's around public health. Some of it's around complicated laboratory medicine. Some of it's around genetics and genomics. Some of it's around trying new treatments and trials and things like that. So, so there's a whole lot of these sorts of uh, groups going on, often under the umbrella of things like WHO, not all of them, of course, but uh, like that. Um, and uh, uh, Zoom actually has been... A, a great blessing because a communication, particularly being able to see the people you're communicating with, um, has actually been a great improvement. And believe it or not, I think it's one of the positives to come out of this whole this whole pandemic. Uh, so the communications uh, uh, becomes really key. The other thing that's you know ma makes a very big difference now um, is the speed of technology. So things mm -hmm. like getting you know, look, when I did my postdoctoral studies in, in, in France, it took them about six months to sequence the HIV genome. Um, and now we can do the SARS coronavirus genome, which is about five times the size, in a few hours. You can even connect it up to your smartphone. So that technology-driven uh, uh, um, uh, advances, super important. Uh, and it will ultimately be the technology that beats this virus. I mean, in 1918-19, with influenza, it just had to die out a, a natural sort of death over many years with frequent waves of disease and so on. I think, you know, to think that we've now got vaccines within a year of this pandemic starting, um, uh, and, you know, if we can vaccinate the world, we can make this, you know hopefully go away or reduce let's talk about the technology is really important let's talk about the vaccines um my favorite is the one you get one jab but yeah. now what's running into trouble yeah that's uh, right there must be seven maybe ten vaccines out there i was talking to a russian scholar and he says their vaccines excellent yeah uh the chinese apparently have something excellent one would think that India, with all their pharmaceutical capacity, would have something up and running pretty soon. Yeah. Uh, is this going to be something like the aspirin? Everybody can do it quickly? Well, you know, there's many, many um, vaccines that have been in clinical trial already for this virus. There's another... You know, well, last time I looked, uh, you know, 150 vaccines in, you know, in the very early phases of trials. Many of these will fall over, just like the one that, that happened in Australia, that fell over. Um, the secret to the vaccines, I think, is a technological one. Um, I think, now I've got to be careful here, but I think, for example, some of the vaccines that have been produced and some of the Chinese ones would fall into that category are using older technology. They're probably pretty reasonable, mm. but the newer technology ones, such as these, you know, mRNA vaccines and all of these sort of things, like the Russian one, number, you know, many of the ones, uh, the big advantage of them 
is that A, they're probably more effective anyway, and that's clearly the most mm -hmm. important thing. But the beauty of some of these, particularly the mRNA vaccines, is that you can sort of very simplistically sort of put any target you like into these systems so that if new viruses appear, uh, you, could, you could sort of put in the relevant bit into these processes and produce a vaccine straight away. And that same approach may in fact be quite useful for oh, a whole lot of other diseases, non-infectious diseases, even cancers and things like that. So the technology around the vaccination, okay, we're anxious about it and you know there are concerns and we've got to work through those, but we can turn around vaccines now in a remarkably short time. All those things like measles and mumps and rubella and so on that we're so used to, they took decades to develop. That's right. Now we're churning these out in all sorts of countries, including in countries that otherwise, you know, have never been involved terribly much in vaccine production. So I think, um, you know, I think, again, this will be a learning from this pandemic, a silver lining to this pandemic. Um, uh, and that'll be, keep us in very good stead for the next one. But there will be a next one. No doubt. And I'm not a scientist in this area. My daughter is, as a matter of fact. She's a neuroscientist. Right, right. Uh, and I don't hear very much about what uh, she's working on. And when I do hear it, I don't understand a word of it. <laughs> but apparently these platforms can be mixed and matched. Yeah. Uh, so you could have like fire hoses. You can have every country and they mix them slightly different ways to deal with the way it appears in their country. Is that right? I think so. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, certainly that's the principle, uh, you know, the detail, <laughs> devil's in the detail with these sort of things. But you're quite right. I think these new technologies will allow us to be much more responsive to either new viruses or new pandemics, but indeed changes in the ones that we see now. You know, everybody's worried about, you know, these new variants that are appearing mm. in Brazil or the UK or whatever. Um, and they may well affect vaccines. We don't absolutely know yet. But now these technologies will allow us to switch those vaccines for those uh, very quickly. And in fact, some of the companies are already doing this. You know, Moderna, for example, you know, they were already developing a vaccine against these new variants. So I think, again, that technology um, is going to be super helpful. It's interesting, though, that as the technology gets better, the anxiety in the community about vaccines gets higher. Yes. And that's a real problem, you know. Uh, uh, um, uh, I mean, people want a vaccine, wanted a vaccine very quickly, but now they're being a bit, oh, you know, anxious about it. And, you know, this whole vaccine hesitancy and, and so on is a real problem, not just for this pandemic, but it can spill over into our ordinary childhood and other vaccines as well. Yeah, what's the end game here? The U.S. is about two hundred million, almost. I I think the is end, that going to be the end game? The other hundred million people don't need to worry. Uh, no, <laughs> I think I think. Look, you know, we talk about this thing of herd immunity, where yes. if enough people in the community have had the disease or had the vaccine, then the few, you know, the proportion of people that aren't uh, are protected. Uh, and this is how we handle measles and so on mm -hmm. and, and, and all of those sort of things. I think with this one, even though the vaccine rollout is 
going you know really well now in the states i think i heard the other day 4.7 million doses in a day you know it's fantastic we haven't done that in a year yeah that's right that's right some countries like australia are actually a bit off the pace other countries israel the united kingdom you know they're actually doing quite well very well you still got to get up to you know probably 70 to 80% of the population before you have this herd immunity um, and that is both a logistics problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got to churn out the vaccine, you've got to get it into people's arms, all of that sort of stuff. Uh, but it's also about, it's also a public acceptance of vaccination. So, you know, when you look at people's views on vaccination, you know, let's say 70% of people perfectly happy to have whatever's on offer. Then you'll have another, you know, 20% or so that are hesitant about it because they've heard things from their friends or on the, on the internet or, you know, this sort of stuff. Uh, and then you'll have always a small hardcore of anti-vaccine people. And, and those people you can probably never change, but they will be protected if the rest of the population are vaccinated. What you've got to work on really are these sort of 20 to 30% of people who are hesitant about vaccines. And that's a public health messaging issue and that's a leadership issue. You know, how do you, you know, it's one thing having, you know, the, the president or the premier or the prime minister lining up and having a vaccine on TV and everybody sees that. But it's more to it than that. You know, it's about explaining to people. It's about uh, showing them that you're uh, legitimate in your attempts to offer it to everybody, making sure everybody has access, uh, that you don't have a divide between the haves and the have-nots or the country and the city, all of those sorts of things. And I think that's where the leadership part of this becomes very important. And then you've got the messaging and the yes. communications. But there, there are two populations I'm very concerned with. One is the homeless in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the people you just mentioned, kind of that population that's floating. Mm -hmm. They don't have a fixed address or anything. We have some of that in Australia, uh, particularly in the center of the country. Uh, how do we reach those people who don't turn up to the center? Uh, they may be more dangerous because they roam around so much. How do we get to them? That's true. So, no, no, you're quite right. And this has been an issue not just in this pandemic, but in for other things like HIV, for example, yes. or hepatitis C, you know, these sort of, you know, many homeless groups and, and, and you know, marginalised populations and so on um, are the ones where disease transmission is often the highest. So to look, you know, it's obviously multifactorial, but what you've got to have is a collective will to go out to those people to treat them and vaccinate them and whatever it might be, as well as ultimately provide an environment that allows them to be more stable, you know, anyway, in terms of the, the so on. But, but you've got to have a, I think a society's got to be committed to helping people who are less fortunate. Yeah. Um, and some of these groups are, are very difficult to work with, you know. They're, yeah, they're very difficult. Uh, I work with Aboriginal communities, both yeah. of us do. And uh, you just don't rock up and say, take this. Exactly. You might have spent three days sitting in the dirt, talking to people about stuff and gradually say, what do you got, mate? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and, uh, but there's another population, a lot of people who move across borders, mm -hmm. international borders. 
some of them are gypsies, Romas, mm-hmm. and the like. Uh, we think the Mexicans crossing the border that you see on television is a problem. There are many more crossing that border that you don't see. Some mm-hmm. of them fly across the border, which most That's Americans don't recognize. Yeah. You, there's no, you just, there's nothing. If you have a Mexican passport, you can get on an airplane and fly to the United States. You don't need a visa. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, I think we see, that's right, we see this. I mean, it's the same in Australia. We've had a strong uh, uh, political opposition to people coming in by boats. Um, but in fact, they're a minority of all the people who they're come small. in. And everyone comes in on a plane and then they overstay or they hide or whatever it might be. So, you know, that's a terrible... They don't problem. want to be found. They don't want to be found. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that that's right. So um, yeah, and I think these are difficult. And I mean, we can't in a country like Australia keep our borders closed permanently. We've got to work out how we open up. Uh, if we open up borders, then there are more risks, no doubt, of disease and so on. Um, but we also have a responsibility, particularly with our neighbours. We you know seeing what's going on in Papua New Guinea at the yes. moment. You know, you know, it's not the same as Mexico and the US, but there are some analogies there in terms of traffic of people back and forth, etc. And so, you know, we have a responsibility, I think, to help our, our neighbours, not just because that is the humanitarian thing to do, but it actually also protects us as well. So, you know, um, uh, and, and I think many countries grapple with this, certainly the States and Mexico, but Australia and Papua New Guinea, many countries are like But almost every country is dealing with this problem. It's the Roma. uh, When the Iron Curtain fell down, there are people coming from everywhere Mm, mm. uh, in Western Europe. And Brexit is a result of that. That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, Now the people with Brexit have to figure out how they're going to have to serve hamburgers and pick up yeah. rubbish and all those kinds of things. Yeah, no, that's right. Because that border was good in some respect. Exactly. I exactly. mean, not bringing it down. So we're going to have to end this discussion on where do we go? Now, I hear one thing. Information, good, strong leadership, consistent, strong leadership, common message, and globalization. This is a global problem, not an American problem, not an Australian problem, not an Italian problem. It's all a problem. Exactly. I agree. How do we get there? I think I agree with all of that. And I think what you can add to that list is the sharing of technology. You know, the, the the use of technology and the sharing of technology, bearing in mind, you've got to, to, in a sense, to create good technology, be it in vaccines or genetics or whatever it is, you have to protect the people that are doing the development. They have to be able to make their money uh, uh, and get back sure. their investment. Um, but by the same token, uh, uh, once that's sort of done, how do you share that technology to benefit everybody, I think is really important. So I think um, uh, the sharing of technology is, 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 I think, a super important thing. And I think, uh, you know, on your list, the transparency and knowledge is, you know, the other thing that's important um, as well. I mean, it goes hand in hand with all of those things, but the information uh, and the transparency and so on, all of that becomes crucial. Well, we're doing our part. Yeah. 
you yeah. know, uh, I don't know where we reach 6,000, 60,000 or 6 million people with this, but if each of us doesn't try, it won't work. Well, that's right. Yeah, no. And, and, and you know, it's baby steps, isn't it, uh, uh, sometimes? Well, this is one where I think the notion that you brought to this international and technology could come together and perhaps end some strife we have around the world. Mm-hmm. Dealing with Iran might be dealing with medicine, not with warheads. Well, exactly. And we're seeing some countries do that. I mean, the approach of countries like perhaps China and Russia as good examples where, uh, you know, they're using, I don't like it, but they're using the medicine as a, as almost as a weapon, which is not, you know, by producing vaccines, giving them to, you know, less developed countries, et cetera, et cetera. That, that's a problem because it's getting away from the humanitarian aspect of it. But anyway. But, uh, but if they give the technology. Sure, sure. That's that right. could be good for all of us. Exactly, exactly, yeah. If you enjoyed what you heard from this episode of Pacific Conversations, make sure to subscribe wherever you find the podcast and even drop it a review if you're feeling generous. Check out the website as well, edtalks.com.au, for information on upcoming chats and for Ed's other podcast, US of Ed, with myself, Sean Britton, regarding weekly US news and current affairs.